Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Daniel Rosenthal. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to The Shed for this afternoon's National Theatre 50 Scene Changes platform on theatre and education from TIE to lifelong learning. Our panel this afternoon, on my right is Lindsay Turner, who's Associate Director at Sheffield Theatres. She recently directed Lucy Kirkwood's Chimerica at the Almeida, and she was once a drama teacher and wrote on education for The Guardian. Next to her is Helen Nicholson, who's Professor of Drama and Theatre at Royal Holloway, University of London, and her books include Theatre, Education and Performance, The Map and the Story. Next to her is the playwright Roy Williams, whose plays include Sing Your Heart Out for the Lads, premiered here at the National in 2002, and also Baby Girl, written for the National's Connections programme, which I hope we'll be talking about later on. And next to Roy is Kevin Carhill, who is Chief Executive of Comic Relief, and in 1982, here at the National, he founded the theatre's education department. The aim with these platforms for the National's 50th anniversary is to give an overview in a limited amount of time of major changes in key areas of theatre in the past 50 years since the National started in 1963. And just before we start off with the panel, a couple of markers, if you like, for where the National started with education and where we are now. So in 1970, almost the very first educational project the National was involved with was this, Know Your Theatre. 15 shillings a student, a six-week series of Wednesday evening lecture discussion meetings at the Stockwell and Waterloo Adult Institute with the personal support of Sir Laurence Olivier. <laughs> Distinguished NT company practitioners, director, designer, stage manager and lighting engineer and others talking to perhaps a few dozen adults living within the vicinity of the Old Vic and paying their 15 shillings a head. Today, National Theatre Learning and Digital on iTunes U have podcasts on similar ground, including acting, costume, scenic design, available free 24-7 to millions of people around the world. So those are just two markers for what's happened since the National started in terms of theatre education. But just to get us going, I'd like each of the panel to sketch for us their own experience of theatre when they were in education, just a flavour of where each of you started. Lindsay. Um, <coughs> hello, good afternoon everybody. Um, I went to a large mixed Catholic comprehensive in Dorset and my experience of drama education at school was first an English teacher who made us uh, pretend to be cats for <laughs> about two years and then another English teacher who um, stood us in a circle and forced us to sing uh, Kate Bush songs <laughs> in, in order to free ourselves. We didn't have any drama specialists at our school and GCSE drama had to be taken in a special after-school club. But simultaneously, I was an usherette in the Pier Theatre in Bournemouth, um, which is where it began. Okay. Oh. Um, hi. There sort of wasn't any. Um, drama in my school. Uh, there was a little bit in my primary school um, where I seem to remember doing sort of movement to music in my vest and pants, which is not particularly <coughs> edifying image. And then um, really it sort of separated off. It was either um, very strong sort of text-based stuff where you occasionally got to stand up and walk about um, or really sort of extracurricular drama where you got in the school play if you were lucky. Mm. But that was it, really. Hi. Um, I think my... I think it goes back to um, <coughs> primary school, just from having sort of vague memories of sort of theatre companies. 
yeah, pulling up their van in the school playground, unloading their sets and then doing the show in, in the hall. And I remember us as kids always getting excited and trying to see if we could uh, recognise any of them from television. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh, you were in um, such and such. And, um, and the plays yeah, varied. Some were sort of educational based, others were about uh, learning how to um, cross the road safely. Um, mm -hmm. Um, then in sort of secondary school, I think like now, um, drama wasn't sort of taken very seriously. I don't think that our, particularly my school, the school I went to, could afford it. Um, but we, you know, we studied, you know, Shakespeare, the Scottish play. I remember watching that particularly, the one with um, Ian McKellen in production, and I remember sort of being always being sort of struck by that. So um, yeah, so it was sort of moments like that that sort of kind of sort of um, kind of stuck to me like skin. Jamie. Uh, a bit of a theme, really. I was taught by religious brothers um, in a Catholic grammar school. Uh, there was no really recognisable drama teaching in the school. Uh, the only thing, there was, a, there was an annual production of Gilbert and Sullivan, I remember. And so I was encouraged um, to dress up as a lovesick maiden and be in, uh, Nan you know, uh, with Nanki Poo or, you know, in, in the gondoliers. And I think the weird thing was that um, that... Uh, I remember having to ask my mother if I could borrow a bra, which was, which was embarrassing. <laughs> uh, uh, but um, I guess that just actually being on stage and kind of uh, and performing, even if you're in the chorus or something like that, which was the one thing that happened every year, was probably what got me kind of into it. I thought, wow, this is brilliant. Uh, you know, if, if people actually do this for a living or for fun, yeah. and uh, yeah. that was it. Helen, if you can give us some, some context, please, for uh, TIE, theatre and education, for the 60s and 70s. So when the National is starting out, before it's here on the South Bank, what range of uh, education was being offered in that way? Well, I think the interesting thing about theatre and education was it is, it's, it's a really radical history. It was a really political history. So the 60s, um, where it really started and took hold in Coventry, in, uh, at the Belgrade Theatre in Coventry. And it was interesting because that theatre was um, a space, a, a new theatre that was built after the war. And it was sort of seen in, in bombed out Coventry as being, if you like, a moment of, of, of a really kind of a Phoenix-like moment that, that this new theatre was being built, first civic theatre to be built. And, the, and Coventry Belgrade started this, this, this thing they didn't know quite how to name. But what they did seems quite sort of conventional now, but was radical at the time. They mounted a production which was in all the backstage spaces with lots and lots of young people coming in. This was kind of mid-60s. This was something that, that really wasn't uh, available at the time. And, and it was a new way of looking at theatre. They didn't use the stage, they used everywhere else. And that started a whole programme of work uh, that, that really integrated into schools during the 60s. Um, and spread out across the country. And what they would do, a bit like Roy's just described, is that there, there would be a van load of people that would, that would turn up. And the motive was really to integrate the curriculum in some way, so that you wouldn't be having drama as a separate subject. You would be learning through drama in all kinds of, in all kinds of different ways. And that, um, that, that, those beginnings were seen not only as a way of radicalising education, but also new ways of thinking about theatre. We'd call it now, I think, a kind of immersive theatre, you know, that, that actually was somehow bigger than the sum of its parts. And there was quite a suspicion of the theatre at the time, which they thought of as being sort of 
bourgeois and spangly and nothing to do with real life. And I think that tradition carried on through the, through the 70s, where, if anything, uh, theatre and education became even more politicised um, and became much uh, more committed, if you like, to a socialist agenda. What's fascinating, when I was kind of researching this, because I don't remember all of it, when I was researching it, then um, so many of the people who were involved early on stayed in theatre education or related movements as a lifelong commitment, which I think showed the kind of dedication of um, the people who started it and the fact that they're actually also very young. You know, there's, they're, they're many of them are still around in their, <coughs> in their 60s and still working in, in theatre education or other areas. From the, from the funding point of view, or indeed from its mm. acceptance, was it up to head teachers, heads of departments, or the LEAs to say, yes, you can have money for theatre and education, or was there resistance? Though it was mostly LEA funded. So you would have a local theatre company, local TIE company, that was funded by the local authority, and the local authority would um, ensure that the schools had access to this, so it was free to the schools, which seems unbelievably historic, doesn't it? Um, and, and that meant that the theatre company, at best, and there was a lot of kind of not at best work, um, at best, and the theatre company had very strong relationships with their schools and they could really work closely with them and actually be part of uh, the curriculum development and the way in which they saw education. So if we move then into the, the mid-70s, when the National opens here, and significantly it was designed by Dennis Lasden without a dedicated education space, something which is being addressed at the moment by the NT Future building work that you can see going on around the building at the moment. So Kevin, when you enter the story, as it were, 1982, the National's been on the South Bank operating as a mm. theatre for six years. Where does the impetus for starting up an NT education department come from and, and how was it set up? It's interesting because in a way uh, uh, I'm not entirely sure where the impetus came from because I, I was the impetus but I didn't, I didn't have it. You know, and, uh, I remember seeing a job advertised which was to run a new education department at the National and uh, <clears throat> it was the first of its kind really in the country. TIE was thriving but the notion that you'd have a department which actually wasn't about putting on plays to educate through the plays, but actually was about theatre itself. It said the process of, of uh, doing theatre, the, uh, uh, all the kind of creative inputs and the idea of the relationship between theatre and audience was uh, of merit in its own right to unpick and share with people. And I, I applied for this job. I was living in Manchester. And um, it was the, the weirdest process, because I remember it took me 18 months to get the job. That, uh, and um, and I, I'd heard when I got the job and came here, and there were literally thousands of people who applied. There were kind of sacks, sacks of mail turning up. And I think everyone who'd ever been to a play or got a PhD in, you know, the, the use of the word the in Shakespeare, thought, that, um, thought they were qualified to do this job. Uh, and uh, I had an interview with a, a guy called John Russell Brown, who's a Shakespearean kind of uh, academic. And then I had an interview with all of the directors of the National Theatre, which is quite scary, Peter Gill, uh, Bill Bryden, Michael Bogdanoff. Uh, and then it went quiet. And then I had this kind of Henry Rootish type of series of exchanges with the National, writing, saying, what's going on? And you know, trying to be ironic and amusing. And, uh, uh, and then I was asked to come in and see Peter Hall. And this was literally 16 to 17 months later. Uh, I think 
basically I was, if you like, the last man standing at that point. I think they must have thought, you know, well, we'll give him, we'll meet him again, just see what we think. And so they met, I met Peter, we had a good meeting, and then I, I, was, um, I was given the job. And I discovered afterwards, going through some of the correspondence, it was a very political appointment, Ilya, uh, were very involved. They were putting up some money. It was a GLC. There was a lot, a lot of different political influ influences uh, around the national who had a vested an interest in it. And I think weirdly, I, I kind of wandered in from the north, very kind of innocent and, and open, kind of eyed, and without any agenda, and just happened in a way to my persistence to get this job. And then I turned up, and I remember on the first day. Um, I, I, was, I was shown to my office, and there was a phone on the desk, and there was um, a woman called, well, a, a young woman then called Carol Winter, who, uh, she's a producer in the West End now, and she'd been a secretary at the National, and I kind of inherited her as my PA, secretary, whatever you call it. She said, I'm not a secretary. This is the first thing I said. I said, well, <laughs> that's fine by me. I said, like, if we get the, the stuff that's got to be done, done before breakfast, we could just make it up as we go along and mess about, you know. And so there was, there was funding for one tour, the importance of being earnest. Judy Dench was in it, Nigel Havers. And I, on two levels, one, it was like being a kid let loose in a sweet shop, because it was just, there was the repertoire of the National Theatre, all the actors, all the technical facilities, all the workshops, you know, wardrobe and paint frame and armory and all the rest of it. And I was just basically told, look at all this, let your imagination run wild, and do what you can with it. And by the way, find the money to pay for it. And, uh, and so we did that first tour, I remember, it was a number one tour. And I had to go and see the actors and say, well, uh, we're going to do some workshops. And they looked at me kind of in astonishment, like, because they were never asked to step outside of their role as actors. And so there was a lot of persuasion to be done to actually get people to do something, particularly the, the creative community, that they hadn't had to, had to do before. And we did that tour. I remember stepping out on stage in Coventry, actually, uh, uh, before a session of theatre was full. It was a matinee. And all the kids were shouting and screaming and throwing. And I was absolutely shitting myself. I thought, you know, I've got, you know I'm supposed to be a grown-up and make sense of this. And I don't actually know what, what to do. But, uh, but from those humble beginnings, you know, we, we pushed on. We did touring productions. We did workshops on plays. Worked with extraordinary you know, Tony Hopkins, Ian McKellen, Judy Dench, as I say, Julie Walters. And it was, a, it was just a joyous, joyous thing. But it was, uh, I think the spark was simply that the pe people in this building thought, you know what, we should open up the repertoire to, to young people in particular and help them understand what the process of putting theatre together means. It was great. And maybe that process leads us into the, a broader discussion of this, this big shift, it seems to me, particularly the last 25 to 30 years, of how do uh, school pupils engage with a text? Is it the idea that you just you have your set text, you read it on the page, and that's that, and you do the exam, as opposed to text in performance? and students, pupils being able to look at plays and understand them only as texts to be performed, that that's when they come to life. So maybe for, for Lindsay and for Roy, I think it'd be interesting to, to ask you about that from the teaching perspective, and also then, Roy, how you feel pupils are able to respond to your own work, to your plays. Um, <coughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, a play, I mean, when it's, when it's yeah, in, in, in text form, it's, it is ultimately there to be performed. So it is kind of sort of like a, it's, it, it is a sort of a roadmap for, you know, for eventually for, for, for it to be up on its feet and for them, for them to, to perform it. And, but, you know, it's how I learned how to write, how I learned how to write plays is by reading them. And 
and you know, if I mention my sort of sad acting days, the same same thing same thing applies. So yeah, there's um, there's a sort of worthy process in in in, in texting performance. Mm. Um, exam, I'm not too sure about. I mean, um, I never that's that's I never experienced that when I was in school. We, like I said, we you know drama was was pretty sort of um, low low priority back then. Um, but you know, but me personally studying theatre texts, you know, you name it, I read it. Was there, there, there was a huge amount of satisfaction for me in, in terms of my development, first as an actor, then as a playwright. Lindsay, tell us a little bit about your experience as, as a drama teacher before then becoming a, a, a director, and, and that overlap. Some playwrights talk about the best directors being teaching directors. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not convinced that anybody needs to hear about my experience as a, a, um, a drama teacher. Um, but it does occur to me on your previous point that plays in schools happen within drama or theatre studies lessons and they happen within English lessons. And there's a huge... I, th I think it's a charisma game in, in schools. When people have a really, really charismatic or exciting um, English or drama teacher, big, big, big things can change. But the whole tide of the way that English is taught in this country runs against the idea of text in performance. The way that our classrooms are set up, the massive faff of the seven-minute dance of clearing the desks to one side in order to do a little bit of performing, um, I think works against that idea. The, um, I'm now recalling some kind of brown-looking BBC Shakespeare's that we may have been shown by uh, teachers who patently can't work a video recorder, so that's <laughs> another seven minutes of the lesson gone. <laughs> then you, uh, sight reading is and will always be an issue in schools, just because you've got a bunch of 30 children bright in their own ways, it doesn't mean that they can make a text live off the page. And I remember one drama teacher we had at school who insisted on playing every single part in Macbeth himself, only um, I, I got to say the bit about Fleance flying, because um, <laughs> I was the best reader in the class. So you end up with strange hierarchies in the classroom to do with who's good at reading out mm -hmm. and who isn't. And it can very, very soon feel like mm -hmm. a kind of bullying. And meanwhile, over in drama teaching, which is in such crisis at the moment, I really feel for drama teachers in terms of the systematic undermining of what they do and their place in schools by successive governments, and this one more than, than any other. There's a vulnerable status in a staff room anyway if you're a drama teacher. The other people in the staff room aren't, can't quite imagine what you do for a living. They're slightly mistrustful of the different way that you work, different way you talk to uh, the kids. So you can get a lot of shit in the staff room just by virtue of being a drama teacher. And then to have that eroded as well by such profound signals saying that learning music or art or um, drama or anything creative in a school isn't necessary to turning out a new generation of briefcase-wielding 1950s Autobots. <laughs> so I, 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 I do think that, I, I do think that um, text and performance is probably, uh, you know, it's so interesting to hear, hear, hear Roy speak because of course that's what you write yeah. for. Yeah. Of course that's what you write for. And the more you look at the Shakespeare plays, the more you admire a man who can write a speech to cover someone else's quick change. <laughs> um, it, it, it's, it's, it's practical to its core, but I don't think our schools really are set up to, um, to interrogate that. Yeah. Helen, can you characterise that 
development with uh, exam boards and, and that, that shift, because it seems to me it has got better, that, that, that students are formally required to compare one version of Romeo and Juliet with another if it's their set text. Can you sketch for us that, that shift? Yes, I think, um, I mean, I think I should preface it by saying that, you know, good teachers will make awful systems work very well. And um, you know, the kind of awful system is that it's based around a set of rather um, dismal tests that the students have to do. And that, um, and that can mean that in schools what happens is that, that, that students get coached for the text. And even if it's a play in performance, then they get coached for how it might be in performance. Notwithstanding, there's some fan I think there is some fantastic drama teacher drama teaching going on in schools where where teachers have been trained to work with text. There have been huge moves during actually the eighties and nineties originally, but but on onwards into how to encourage active approaches to Shakespeare in particular is where it started, because obviously Shakespeare is the one that everybody gets gets most under the collar about because it seems inaccessible but when you go and see it, it's a bit of a laugh and all that kind of stuff um so so approaches to uh, to to text have changed quite radically the problem is then what happens when they get assessed and that always seems to me to the, be the, the the sticking block if you get assessed by um writing about how you might put on a piece of Shakespeare, then actually you can kind of learn that, but not in a way in which it's embodied and understood and fluent. So for me, it's always the assessment points that you look at to see how, how interesting and how radical the curriculum can be. And I'm afraid, even though they have, you're quite right, the curriculum has invited people to think about performance much more, then what's assessed, particularly before they get into the... the um, the exam streams, you know, the GCSE, the specialist drama um, courses, theatre studies courses, what's assessed is how well they can write about it, um, which seems to me to be problematic. Kevin, let's bring it back to the, the work of the National's Education Department sure. and the mobile tours. You know, in a, in a sense, the National was doing a version of TIE. You were going out on the road uh, with what kinds of shows, what kinds of venues and what was... Uh, provided around the production for schools, for colleges? Uh, they, they did change over the years. Uh, they, I suppose the person who should take most credit for them initially would be Michael Bogdanov, who is the director here. And he he noticed that when the actors were in repertoire, uh, they would have downtime when another show was opening or if they weren't on a particular... So he got a group of the younger actors in the company, I think there were about nine or ten of them, and decided to do a production of The Chalk Circle. Um, and uh, they, it was literally the kind of poor theatre that they, that they uh, devised a production, but without any props or setting or anything like that, got in a minibus and organised to go around some small schools and colleges and different venues, turned up. There were one or two things that were required for the show, they had to, so they had to find them in the space uh, and, uh, you, you know, kind of, because there's a bridge that uh, Garusha Vashanati has to go across. And, they kind of made that every time they went somewhere without any prearranged stuff, and just did you know did the play. And I think for the um, for the young people watching it, it was it was just brilliant. It was kind of national theatre actors, so actors of some calibre and talent who were in a bus turning up at your school or something and doing Brecht. And uh, and it was very visceral. It was great fun. You know we. And from then on, it got, became a bit more formalised. I had to find more money, so I had to go and find more sponsors. And um, 
I remember, this is a funny story, but we, I used to go next door to IBM because they were opposite and I thought that was the closest company to us. And the guy there running their sponsorship department was quite a, a good guy called Peter Wilkinson. And we were doing a show called All Wells England, uh, which was Michael Bogdanov again. And he had six actors, but they played between them something like you know, 25 different instruments. They were a musically gifted small group. And he did this show based on the, on the essays of George Orwell. Uh, and we were, we were taking it out on tour. And we did the, the, um, the uh, last dress rehearsal at Eton, because Orwell, obviously, you know, famous people of Eton, we took the show back there. Had a brilliant night. And I phoned the guy next door, Peter Wilkinson, and I said, what did, uh, what did you make of the play? Did you like it? He said, yeah, I did. He said, but we, we might have to take our name off it. And I said, why? Is that a Quaker company? I said, why would that be? He said, well, because of the use of the word fuck. Um, the, the word fuck had been used twice in the show. Uh, and as a Quaker company, if it was going into schools, he was a bit worried. And um, so I said, but it's, it's verbatim. You know, Orwell used that word. They, were, they weren't making it up. Uh, uh, and I said, you better leave it with me. I, and I, I, Peter Hall, who, who uh, he was brilliant at the time. He was so kind of, you know, had such husband and, and charisma. And he'd always said to me, I don't know how you're making this work, uh, but carry on, because you're creating a few waves. And if you're ever in trouble, give me a call. So I called Peter and I said, I need to see you. Can I? He said, well, come in at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning before rehearsal. I went to see him. I said, we've got a bit of a crisis here. That IBM are going to pull out of this play. And then he said to me, get the guy over at lunchtime and, uh, and I'll scare him to death. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He said, well, look, National Theatre Board's very leaky. IBM in fuck play scandal in schools. <laughs> you can see the headlines now. Uh, so I called up Peter Wilkins and said, can you come over at midday? Uh, Peter's going to break off from Peter. I said, yeah, Peter Hall. So we're taking this very seriously. He's going to break off from rehearsal. And the three of us are going to meet and work out what to do. And uh, he said, leave it with me, the chap next door. And, um, and then he called me back an hour later. He said, it's OK. I've spoken to our press office. We're going to stick, stick with it. And he said, my press officer said the two fucks was better than a withdrawal. <laughs> 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 uh, 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 and, um, <laughs> Well, there are many things wrapped up in that story. Right. One was Peter Hall was brilliant to work for. Two, Bogdanov had this real thing. Three, the actors by then had got used to what we were asking to do. They loved it. They loved getting out there and performing. Yeah. And we had such a wide range of shows. We did Roots with Pam, Pam Ferris in it. We did The Mother, uh, directed by Di Trevis with Yvonne Bryceland. So at that point then, some of the more starry names in the company kind of saw the merit in, in the work. And so yeah. we... Um, it was brilliant taking those shows. And Di Trevor said to me once, she said, and to the company, when you're going into schools, you've got a big responsibility. If any kids come up to you, find the time of day for them, talk to them, because that one encounter with you could literally, honestly change yeah. their lives. If you, if you meet them as equals and inspire them on that day, wherever they are in any school or whatever it might be, their lives could become something different. And that never, never left me, really. So. Well, that, that um, interaction leads us naturally on to uh, connections and the National's extraordinary youth theatre project, biggest youth theatre project in the world, started in the, the late 90s. And Roy and Lindsay have both been involved. And um, just to briefly sketch it, 10 writers are asked to write uh, a play to be performed by young people and it's performed all around the country. And a certain number of those productions are then showcased here at the National. And what it's done is to create an extraordinary repertoire of new writing 
for young people. You can be an actor for 10 years professionally and maybe not to be, appear in a new play, and thousands of young people get to appear in a new play. So Roy, could you maybe tell, uh, talk us through <coughs> writing Baby Girl and what that experience was like, the brief that you have, and, and how you followed through the story that you wrote? Um, it was a very exciting brief, um, a brief that I've, you know, I hadn't be, been accustomed to before. Um, normally it's just, okay, we give you commission, go forth and write. Um, but this one, the, as you said, it was sort of, um, they said, so, yeah, it's a play aimed directly for young people, which some writers may or may not find restrictive. Um, I, f I sometimes feel it's the opposite. I think it's much more, there's much more, more possibilities, even with slight limitations and things you can't necessarily get away with, with plays that I've written at the National, you know, for example, Singing Art Out for the Lads. Um, but it was work that, um, that kind of got me started in theatre in the first place. I started in, yeah, like, as I said, you know, sort of um, watching school vans, but then I joined a youth theatre. I did it that way. And a lot of people who worked in youth theatre were people, very much the pioneers of theatre and education in the late 70s and early 80s. So um, their influence was very much with me. So it was a very easy decision to do, um, to, take, to take on um, Baby Girl. And it was exciting knowing, wow, my play could be on at, at the same time, the same week in different places across the country. And, um, and that, that, that was kind of exciting. But it, ultimately, a play is a play. You know, I had, to, you know, had, had sort of blank page and I, and, you know, and sort of, you know, like, you know, like everything I, I, I write, I had to sort of say, okay, what do I want to write about? What do I care about? And that surprised me, and, but, but also pleased me, because um, like, like I said, it was the same rules as when I'm writing an adult play. I just kind of thought, okay, who am I? What do I, do I want to write this play? What's it going to be about, and what, and what is it going to tell its chosen audience? And, and I just, just kind of trusted my instincts and just went for it. And, um, and with Baby Girl, the subject matter, and it's still talked about now, I think the subject matter was that headline in the paper about um, that 12-year-old girl got pregnant, and the father was also a sort of uh, a ten-year-old boy, and then yeah, the light bulb just struck in my head, and then I just started writing it really. Um, but the process for writing a play for young people and and, and, and for the adults is is that for me anyway. There's no difference really. It's still a play, and you still have to serve um, the audience, and also you have to, um, which was great about the Connections play. You know, it had to be at that time your best work. You really have to sort of say this is this is the work that's going to be seen by people, and it's really important to. I still tell myself that you know, even though we're writing for a young audience, but um, they are still an audience, and they have as much right to see a play, quality play, as as um, adult audiences would coming to the national. And um, that's um, you know, doing Baby Girl was a really good sort of strong reminder of myself about that. Just saying, yeah, you know, you know, forget about how old they are; it's still an audience, and you owe it to them to come up with the goods. And then when you saw Baby Girl performed by teenagers, yeah. not non-professionals, what, what was that like compared to seeing, seeing a play written for here performed by adult professionals? Um, it, 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 was, it, was, it was, to me, it was a kind of the, the same really. It's, it's always a delight whenever I write my work to see actors give it, give it their all. I mean, I mean you know, Inexperience or inexperience aside, but it was just the, 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 the commitment, the passion for it. And it, it, when I saw the first youth theatre group in Cambridge, I went up there with um, Susie Adriani to watch um, a run through of my play. It was just great just seeing them go for it. And it reminded me of when I started out in, in, in youth theatre. And I just felt, yes, okay, 
you know, it wouldn't surprise me if half of those people you know, went out and um, you know, are, are sort of serious actors now. And um, so it was, you know, that's, that's my ego talking. It's just great seeing your work, your words spoken by, by, by actors. You know, the, the fact that they're professional or not is irrelevant to me. Yeah. It's, just, it's just nice to hear. Lindsay, as one of the Connections directors, what's your uh, role and experience of, of that scheme? I'm a massive Connections fan and I'm going to have to miss it this year for the first time in ages, which I'm gutted about. I think there's almost no level on which it's not a brilliant mm. idea. Mm. Um, and I think what's chiefly brilliant about it is its simplicity. And it's using mm. what the National can do. If the National's a kind of lightning rod that can attract writers, both um, extremely senior, David Mamet did one, mm and also a new generation of writers, and increasingly international writers, writers from around the world. And if it can give them a really simple brief, write a play for, that young people could perform, um, I think it's making all the best use of its resources. But also it's, thanks to Anthony's commissioning really, um, it's creating a canon, a brand mm. new canon of work that can be performed again and again. And I wonder whether we could look back on that canon in years and tell ourselves the stories of the young people mm. in our society and beyond by just tracking ideas mm. through those um, connections plays. So I, I was one of those people who went out into schools. I w went out to 20 uh, schools one year um, with my rucksack um, to have a little look at what people were up to. I've done it the other way around as well. got um, attached to a kind of winning school who came here and I saw firsthand, A, how the National Theatre goes nuts when connections are here, and B, what uh, Rolls-Royce experience the shows that come in to the Olivier mm, or to the yeah. Cottesloe or, 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 or whatever um, have. Um, and I, I, I think the whole, the whole process from beginning mm -hmm. to end is, is really, really provocative, yeah. really, really exciting. Mm -hmm. and. Um, simply meets people, looks them in the eye and expects them to be professionals and it's so often um, huge ways of young people oblige. Oh. Trevor Nunn, when he was director here, talked about teenagers saying to him that performing here was a life-changing yeah. experience. So we're back with that idea. Kevin, was, was devised work, did that become part of the NT education work in the time that you were here? It did and uh, in fact we, we I think I, that I started work on was, was called Lloyd's Bank Young Theatre Challenge. It had a corporate sponsor then, but it was probably the precursor to Connections mm. because mm. we opened up the Olivier to youth it groups was, from, yeah. across yeah. The, uh, from across the country to do it. But, uh, but I suppose that my perspective on this is a bit different because, uh, as I say, I was offered the jewel, the jewel of the National Theatre and say, how do you use that to inspire young people as well? So I remember when Tony Hopkins was playing... Um, uh, was in Pravda here, and you know, you, a lot of the good work gets done in the canteen, you're chatting away at lunch, and he, he'd said that he, if I ever wanted him to do any workshops on King Lear, he'd be up for it, you know, and I remember setting some up out at Goldsmiths, uh, out in the, down the old Kent Road there, and driving him in my, I had a green beetle, uh, uh, and he was a big man, Tony Hopkins, and we, we'd drive down the old Kent Road together, you know, chatting away, and, uh, and then he, he he was examining King Lear with this group of kind of uh, 17 and 18 year olds out there. And he, 
and I realised later, because he played King Lear, that he, it was his own kind of exploration of the part and, mm. and the play himself in order to prepare himself for playing it. But he was sharing his insights as he was on that journey with a group of young people. And that's very different. I think TIE was, was brilliant, and I was obviously around at the same time. But the piece of work that, that, that I was involved in was just actually taking, I suppose, the more high art, if you like, of this establishment but making it low art in the sense that it was accessible to the broadest sweep of young people as possible with the, the great tools at my disposal of people like you know, Tony Hopkins. So. Yeah, that unfortunately is where we have to leave it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming and thank you to our panel. <laughs> <laughs>